believe our church for the past few weeks has been in a season of, of suffering and of sickness and some different things that are going on. And there may be some things that I haven't even heard about that are going on in your life. But if this passage resonates with you today, I hope you will hear it based on that. The message title this morning is, We Do Not Lose Heart, from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And let's have a word of prayer before we begin today. Father, we thank you. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the beginning and the end, the first and the last, and you hold this entire universe right in the palm of your hand. And Lord, I pray that we would not forget that today, amid the struggles, amid the reports, amid the financial difficulties. Lord, whatever the struggle is this morning, for everyone here within the sound of my voice, Father, may you speak to them, remind them of who you are, and help our hearts to be receptive to your word. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, and for his sake, amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to read the, the whole chapter, so follow along with me, if you would. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for your sake, that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We do not lose heart. I spent a good portion of my life 
memorizing and reciting God's Word. I was in kindergarten, our church had a Christian school, and they would tell us, graduating from grade to grade, that one of the requirements for graduating was you had to be able to say the 66 books of the Bible in order. And I don't know if they said that to scare us or to intimidate us, but we all learned the 66 books of the Bible, and we said it every year to get from one grade to the next. And I learned a trick, one of the things that I could show off, because I didn't have any athletic ability or good looks to show off, so I would say the 66 books of the Bible in one breath. And the challenge for me wasn't saying those 66 books, it was getting enough breath to be able to do so. We had several different groups that, that would get together. We had Patch the Pirate Club, in which you were required to, mem to memorize so many verses during the week. I went through all of that and memorized those verses for six years. We had what was called Bible Quiz Team for the Christian school that we would meet in state academic competitions, and we actually won four championships in a row. I got to serve as team captain until one year when this homeschool team that was really good completely dethroned us. I mean, they put us out of the water. At church, we had what was known as Bible Bowl, and you would have to stand up and put your name, or put your hand on the scripture where you were pointing to and give the answer to it on a given chapter. I participated in that from the time I was 10 until the time I was 21, and once you stood up, whether you were right or wrong, we would participate in area churches at youth rallies, and you had to give your name and your church. So I would always say Barry Fields, Glendale, that was my church. I have people come up to me to this day from other churches when I see them at funerals or revivals or whatever it is, and they'll come up behind me and they'll say, Barry Fields Glendale, because they, they remember that. And I don't know if they mean it as a compliment or an insult, but I choose to take it as a, as a compliment. We also had in our churches what was called Bible Drill. Maybe some of you participated in that. The Kentucky Baptist Convention uh, puts that on to where you would point to a scripture passage and stand when you got it, move forward when you got it. They tried to time you. Everybody had the same Bible to see how fast you could locate. I was a state winner for six years. My freshman year of high school was the last year I could participate. I got second place from going to the Nationals. I got beat by a, by a girl. Again, it wasn't the first time or the last time I got beat by a girl, but she, she did better than me because I had a lot of errors. But I bet you if, you, if you put out a test in front of me to do something from the King James Bible, because that's the version I memorized it in, that I, I could do pretty well on that test. I, I can recite whole portions of Scripture. And it's not because I studied more than other people. It's just because of the environment that I grew up in. I, you know, I used to memorize it and recite it, but as I get older, I, I find that I'm clinging to it because I don't know anything else to do. I remember sitting in the back of the sanctuary after my parents had separated and just crying out to God that he would save my family. I remember holding the hand of a dear sweet lady in our church about six years ago in the emergency room as the doctors in vain tried to pump life back into her husband and sitting there and praying with her and telling her that it was in the Lord's hand either way and she would not let go of my hand. And he died and was one of the most encouraging people I'd ever met. There was about two weeks when the engagement that I thought was God's will that turned out not to be God's will, there was about two weeks where it was all I could do to get out of bed every day. And some days I didn't do more than that. When I found out my cousin was, had, had overdosed and was in the hospital just a couple of months ago and walked in and saw her nine-month-old boy and her 13-year-old teenage son who found her without a mom, you know, I don't believe this book because I'm a pastor. 
I believe this book because I don't have anywhere else to turn. And I've got to tell you, how in the world can you go on if you don't believe the gospel? They tell us that the world is getting better, but we know that it's getting worse. I've seen families break up. I've seen loved ones die. I've seen once godly people fall away. I've seen more suffering than I ever wanted to see. And if these verses are not true, I don't know the point of it all. God tells us that we live in a fallen world, a world that's not the way that it's, it's supposed to be, how sorrow and suffering and sin weren't a part of the original equation. And even beyond Adam, you and I rebel against God, and we do it every single day. We think we know more than God does, so we go our own way. Or we think that what we want is better than what God wants, and so we do our own thing. But the truth of the Scripture is that God knows and wants what is best for you even when you don't know and want what is best for yourself. And that's why Paul is able to write in the previous chapter before writing this one, 2 Corinthians 3, he says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And having seen the unveiling of the mystery of God, having seen things hidden from the foundation of the world, it is because of that confidence that we do not lose heart. Because we have this ministry by the mercy of God. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. They have obtained mercy. How can you withhold from somebody else what God did not withhold from you? So God honors the merciful. And he goes on and he says the reason that we do this is not some type of charlatan scheme. He says we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We're not living the Christian life as some sort of shady enterprise that we're all in on. This is real. And then he says, if even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing because the God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the very image of God. He says, we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Look, we're not here for ourselves. We're not here to worship ourselves. We're servants. We're here to lift up the name of Jesus and everything we do inside this building, outside this building, ought to be done to the glory of God because He's the one who receives it. And so we can't walk out of here praising God and living for the world the rest of the week. That just can't happen. The Son of God paid way too much of a price for that. And then he says, because God has said, he goes on in this verse, let light shine out of darkness and it's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why the pure in heart shall see God, even though no man can look upon God and live because they have seen God right in front of them in Jesus Christ. That's why John says, we don't even know what we'll be like one day, but we know that we shall be like him. Why? 
for we shall see Him just as He is face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face, what will it be when with rapture I behold Him? Mine eyes begin to see. And then He gives us the reason for all of our troubles. Listen to this. Mark this down. Verse 7. It's because we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. My ministry heroes who lived during the 1800s, a pastor by the name of Charles Spurgeon, you've heard me referencing, many of you are probably familiar with his ministry. He pastored the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. The building itself burned in a fire after his ministry ended, and then World War II came, and the Blitz, and they bombed the church, so the church itself isn't what it used to be, but the front of it's still there. And so when I went to London a couple of weeks ago, I got to see the original uh, facade of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. It, it's different for me just for him being a preacher, though. My, my pastor recommended one of his books to me when I was a kid. I, I got it when I was 15 or 16. It's called Lectures to My Students. And my pastor's favorite book that he often quoted from, the, the chapter of it, was The Minister's Fainting Fits. Somebody over there, one of my pastor's friends in London, found out that I liked that book, found out that I was over there, and gave me a first edition copy of that. I've got that over in the house, and there's not a, hardly a better gift you can get me as far as books. But Spurgeon, in his times of discouragement and his times of despondency, speaking to fellow pastors and people leading in the church, gives reasons why it is that people who are sometimes on the Himalayan summit with God will also walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he gives many reasons, but the one that I think that is most compelling is this. He says, is it not that they are but men? <laughs> we forget that sometimes. What do we know about jars of clay? They're fragile. They're vulnerable. They break. So do we. My last congregation, we had a very young teenage girl get pregnant and lose the baby. She was from a tough family situation. The baby was born prematurely, so it didn't live very long. They wanted to have a service for the baby, a graveside service. They asked me to do it. It was one of those surreal experiences that you just don't forget because instead of having a bunch of adults there, it was a bunch of teenagers having to act like adults. I mean, I, I still have the clear image in my mind it had been a tough week anyway, several things that had gone on in the life of the church. And just a, a few days after that, I got a call one Wednesday night after doing the kids and youth program at church saying that this girl who I had talked to, who had made a profession of faith in Christ, had become pregnant again. It's a whole cycle repeating itself. And, and I don't know if you've had this happen. My couch was about two or three feet away, but you just have times where you just got to sit down wherever you are. And so I fell down onto that wood floor and just started rocking back and forth. And I cried out to God and I said, God, I can't take this anymore. I don't know how in the world I can do ministry after all of these things. I'd imagine you've probably been there too. You know what that's like when you feel like you can't go on? Paul had been there. He'd had people beat him. He had had people run him out of town. But you know what the hardest thing for him was? The hardest thing was when the people he thought were on his side betrayed him. It's not too bad when an enemy goes against you. You expect that. But when someone who was once close, and so when he says in 2 Timothy, in his last letter to Timothy, before Paul is beheaded for his faith, he says, I fought a good fight. 
I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. And one of the saddest verses in all the Bible, he talks about someone who left, Demas. He says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. And he's departed into Thessalonica. Paul said, when I went on trial before the Romans, no one stood with me. Just like with, with Jesus, nobody stood beside him. All the disciples left. But then Paul reminds us of something. He says, but then the Lord stood with me. Oh, even if the entire world forsake you, if you are a child of God, he does not forsake his own. And he reminds us of that, that when we live in the promises of God, I used to wonder, I don't know if you've wondered this before, I used to wonder, why doesn't God use more celebrities? You know, if we just had some good movie makers and some athletes and some entertainers, man, if we could get those people saved, it'd be awesome, and, and the culture would come to Christ and all that, but you, you don't see a whole lot of athletes, a whole lot of entertainers, you see a few. And I wonder, why, why can't we get some people who are big names? Why can't we get some people with some big skills? And then I came across that passage from 1 Corinthians 1 that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And he says, not many wise men were called after the flesh, not many mighty, not many rich among you, but God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are strong. He's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the things which are wise, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So you know why God uses broken people like me? <laughs> And broken people like you, so that when something happens and people come to faith in Christ, people are moved by what we do, God alone gets the glory. That's why He used the disciples. That's why He uses us. We need to remember something, don't we? That the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That the God of this universe is seated on His throne and in a world filled with doubt and uncertainty, the promises of God remain ever more the same. Write them in your mind. Etch them into your heart. We do not lose heart. He goes on. He says, look, we're afflicted in every way. <laughs> Has anybody in here honestly found it easy to live the Christian life? If, if you have, raise your hand and tell us your secret. I'd like to know. Listen, forget being a pastor. I have a hard enough time just being a Christian. I identify with what Jesus says to Peter. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I feel that every single day. And so we have to die to ourselves. We have to realize that we have another master. Don't we? <laughs> what we're doing together as the body of Christ, it's not easy. <laughs> Nor is it supposed to be. He says in verse 8, we're perplexed. You know what that translates to? <laughs> we don't know what to do about half the time. Goodness, can I get a witness? But not driven to despair. <laughs> you suffering from illness today? cares of this world have you down? Do you struggle with the same temptations, the same sins over and over again? Maybe you talk down to your spouse. Maybe you neglect your kids. Maybe you're battling with lust. Maybe you're rude to people you don't know. And Maybe it's discouraging to you. 
But I would keep in mind, if you are a child of God and you are trying to live for Him, then when you are at your weakest, God is at His strongest in you. And perhaps the greatest working of God in your life is when you don't really have very much to do with it. When He chooses to glorify Himself in your weakness. Paul said, I'll glory in my infirmities if the power of God will rest upon me. Promises that. And then he says, here's why. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. He reminds us what things were gained to me, those I count lost for Christ. Everything's on the table. A blank check with my life, my, my home, my job, my family. It's all on the line because it doesn't belong to me. I gave my life to him, and so it's all his anyway. And anything that he can use it for would be much greater than what I could use it for. I do it for Jesus. I do it because I remember what he's done. I don't know if anybody's got some carrots of gold on their rings today. Maybe some of you do. Maybe some of your husbands went far out. Maybe they, maybe they need to go a little bit further out on your anniversary. You can remind them to get something nicer. I don't know where you are. You know how gold is made? It's tried, isn't it? It's tried in the furnace. And that's when it becomes pure. It's the same way with your faith. It's not tried when things are easy. It doesn't grow when things are good. It grows in the furnace. It grows in the most difficult, painful areas of your life. I like what C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Problem of Pain. I highly recommend that to you. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God may be trying to speak to you today. Are you listening? He helps us in our infirmities that, that like as a father pitieth his children, so also the Lord takes compassion on us that I have to believe that this is true, that whatever happens to me in life, my God will not withhold any good thing from me, his child. Now, people may withhold from me. I may not get the promotion that I think I deserve. My family might not give me recognition. The things I do in church may go unnoticed. But God will not withhold any good thing from me. Do you believe that? I mean, really, I know we believe it in our mind, but do you believe that with everything you have, that whatever you've got from God, and anything good that you think you need to have hasn't been given to you because God has given you everything you need right now? He will not withhold any good thing from you. And he says, we do not lose heart. So you see sorrows of suffering, but then you also see glimpses of, gra of grace. He says in verse 16, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. This eternal weight of glory. What a statement that is. 
Listen, all of the world's greatest artists and scientists and writers could get together to try to talk about this eternal weight of glory, this love of God, and they could conspire together for decades of their lives, and they could not even write the first sentence. They couldn't touch the scaffolding. They couldn't formulate its composition. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels' song. And if we knew what waited for us over there, we wouldn't be nearly as concerned with the problems we think we have here. He tells us to take heart. This light momentary affliction. It seems like a long time, but it's only for a little while. So what do we do in the meantime? He tells us to hold on. He tells us to care for one another, to check up on one another as members of the body of Christ. You know, there's a lot of things that are valued in churches today. Some people value those that maybe have money, those that contribute. Maybe they value those who have a prestigious image in the community. Maybe they, they value a, a number of different things. You know what God values? You know what God values? Faithfulness. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. So you know what we need to look for in our own lives, in our church? People who are faithful people who are committed. It's the value that God places upon us as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are trenchant, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I, I just wish right now, I wish God would give us a glimpse of who He is. Just a glimpse. Moses had a glimpse and his hair turned color on him. Face glowed for three days. <laughs> Some of the wives are saying, I wish my husband would get a glimpse of the glory of God and glow a little bit. Just a glimpse of the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage us to gather together and pray for one another today. Let's check up on one another. Let's go out there united and reach a lost and dying world for Him. And while we're at it, because of the confidence we have in Him, because of what Jesus Christ has done, we do not lose heart. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the broadcast. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. For more information, check us out online at barryefields.com.